0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: All right, we are live and we're recording. Good morning. This is Rachel Marshall with the Money Advantage Podcast Bruce Wayner, my co-host, is here, and we have a new face. This is Steve Sims, who are, is going to have a fabulous conversation with us today about attracting influencers and high net worth clients, and judging by the way the conversation has already started, there probably will be a little bit of unpredictability and new things that we don't know what we're going to talk about today yet, but they'll be awesome. So Steve, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. Well, if you are listening to the show and you've been following us for a while, you know that we talk about building time and money freedom. You know that we talk about taking ownership of your financial life. And at the same time, you are probably looking to do much more than you've ever done before in this year, 2021. And so Steve is a master at helping people achieve the impossible connect with the most powerful people in the world. We're going to hear about that in a second. Achieve your next level in business, strengthen your relationships, lead your community, and make an impact. So, Steve, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about who you are.
2: It's probably not great etiquette to disagree with the host at the beginning (laughs) of the show. Go right ahead. If I may, I've never achieved the impossible, okay? I've achieved the stupid. Now I'll explain. (laughs) Impossible is a dead end. It's like saying, hey, go for that dead end. In your head, no matter how cool you are with mindset, when you suddenly define something as impossible, you put your own block on it, okay? Mm. So what I do is I go for the stupid. I go for the ridiculous. I go for something so stupid that is laughable until the point I achieve it and then you applaud. You know, so... I go for the ridiculous and we can go into that in a mindset later, but for 25 years plus, I founded the world's first um, uh, concierge firm. I was the, literally the starter of the private concierge industry and I focused only on billionaires. In fact, at the height of my industry, I had 93 clients when two thirds of those were billionaires. That's all you need. You know, if that was oh, McDonald's right. and you had 93 clients, you're bankrupt. But for me, I'm okay, you know, um, and I was well known for sending people down to the Titanic, getting them a drum lesson with Guns N' Roses, sticking them on the, on stage with their favorite rock band, sending them up into space. Um, one of the famous stories that everyone knows, anyone that knows me, um, was I had a client that wanted to have a meal in Italy, and he wanted it to be uh, unforgettable, and so I closed down the Accademia, de Galleria in Florence uh, that houses Michelangelo's David, set up a table of six at the feet of David, and then halfway through that pasta, I had uh, Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade him. So I'm basically the Make-A-Wish Foundation for people with really, really, really big checkbooks. Um, (laughs) I love it. I got asked to release a book, um, naming all the powerful people that I dealt with. Couldn't do that because, quite simply, I'd be dead by cocktail hour. So um, instead what I did was I did a a book on... um, how to do it and how a bricklayer from London suddenly ends up doing all of these things. Uh, and I didn't expect it to take off. In fact, we didn't even have a website and it did. Uh, and so now what I do is I coach and I help people get that mindset right and teach them how to get the clients that they deserve and lust and want rather than the clients they get.
1: Mm, that so, is so fascinating. Go ahead, Bruce. It is. See,
0: so what's the number, I mean, I this is kind of like a, a normal podcast. Uh, cast question, but what's the number one thing to get your mindset right? The first thing, not to identify the problem.
2: Okay. Um, I noticed. Did you say not to identify the problem? Yeah. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through a weird kind of, sorry, my dog's jumping around me at the moment. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit. I left school at the age of 15 and I became a bricklayer. Okay. Because my family had a bricklaying firm. And what I noticed was that People were constantly focusing on the problems. You know, you would say to someone, hey, what do you want to do? And they'd go, oh, I'd love to do this, but I can't. I don't have the money. I don't Mm. have the connections. People spend way more energy on telling you why they can't do something rather than focusing on the way they could. And I remember when when I was younger, I had no money. From East London, I was riding around on a motorcycle, broke. You know, I knew what it was like to have no money and to play you know, the, the, the pocket bank account to see how, many be- uh, how much money you had as to how many beers you could buy. I noticed that people were quite happy to settle for that life. Mm. But as entrepreneurs, as different as we are, I reckon, and I don't want anyone to prove this, but I reckon if you sliced an entrepreneur in half, I reckon there's like a little purple blood cell or something or a little strain of DNA that unites us. Because have you ever noticed that whenever you get into a room full of entrepreneurs, you're at home.
3: Oh, it's like it's, home, isn't
1: it? Yes, it's energizing because there's yeah. creative energy, there's innovation, there's thinking outside the box, there's, hey, what if we could do this? Hey, what if we could do that? And that's totally the opposite.
2: And, and that's totally the opposite to, to the problem, okay? Mm-hmm. You see, most entrepreneurs realize they're entrepreneurs because they start off pissed off. Um, Sorry, yeah, language. They start off <laughs> aggravated. Okay. Entrepreneurs are aggravated. We go to, we go and do something and then we go, why do we do it like this? Surely there's a better way of doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, Elon Musk hated banking, invented PayPal, you know, entrepreneurs are aggravated and they have to find a way of doing it right. So what they do is they look at the problem. It's a, it's a long way around your, your, your question. They look <laughs> at the problem and then they go, not let's help fix it, why is it there? Why is the problem? That, why do we do things like that? And have you ever spoken to someone and go, hey, why do you do that? And you get the answer, because that's how we've always done it. Right. Now, entrepreneurs <laughs> come along and go, okay, that's, that's got squeaks in it. That's got rattles. That doesn't work very well. Let's not fix it. Let's remove it. You know, I remember when Elon Musk was talking about his electric vehicles, He was talking about the amount of moving parts in an engine. An engine has oil to correct the friction because friction rubs and anything that rubs is bad. The only thing you want rubbing on a car is the brakes to slow you down. So you've got an engine that is constantly wearing itself out and your solution, put some oil in there. That way it'll stop it wearing out as fast. And Elon came along and went, well, how can we go forward but have no friction and he focused on magnets and that was the birth of the Tesla engine. So entrepreneurs, I wanted to get in a room with people to see, saw things differently. As I was a youngster, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to be. And I vividly remember sitting in that pub in East London, my bike outside. I've got enough change in my pocket for maybe two and a half years and thinking to myself, is this it? You know? And I remember coming up with my own little statement. I used to say to myself, right, Steve, you are the room you're in. Now, mm-hmm. we all know the statement, you are the combination of the five people. I didn't have any of that because, like, you know, being, being older than both of you by the looks of it, um, we didn't have internet. I didn't have Instagram to tell me how inadequate my life was. Oh, so sure. I didn't have access to anything.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I didn't know these little one-liners because my, my parents were not going to have, like, Stephen Covey or any of those books in the house, right? Uh, We we didn't have books in the house, but as entrepreneurs, you know when something's not right, and we jump out of the frying pan into the volcano to go and try and find it. And
1: you know, I love that. I love that. It's really interesting because I think you really have described entrepreneurs to a T, and that's really one of the reasons why we're always looking to not just do things better. I mean, if you look at the typical financial industry, we've seen. You can't predict returns. You don't know if your money's going to go up or vanish in a hot second. You don't know if you're going to be in a situation where your money's going to run out and you're going to live longer and you're going to say, what happened? And how do I have the income to support me later in life? You look at, there is a a lot of problems in the typical financial industry. And so really, instead of us just saying, well, how can we get a little bit of a better return or how can we uh, make our money last uh, one year longer? we're really saying, how can we rethink the entire paradigm instead of just building up an accumulated pile of cash, getting to a retirement date, having the $1 million or the $2 million or whatever you think is an amazingly magical big amount of money, and then running out of money on the way down the hill. We're saying, how can we wipe all of that completely away and say, It's really about creating cash flow with assets. How can you do that as quickly as possible so you can create time and money freedom, which means you have enough income coming from things like real estate and alternative investments and you're in a position where you don't have to worry about that stream of income because it continues to come in. We're thinking completely different and that's the reason why people who are talking to us and who are listening to our show and who are in our tribe are also thinking differently. They're thinking differently about money. So Let's back up to a little bit, because you mentioned being from a bricklaying family, not having Stephen Covey books in your family, no books at all. How did you decide, where where did that idea come in to create these amazingly magical events? Uh, you shared even before I had a chance to, but you've been um, doing some amazingly Wonderful events for the rich and famous for a long time, and I don't think there's anyone like you on the planet. So, how did you come up with the idea to do that in the first place?
2: I'd love to give you a magical answer, but I didn't. Um, it it was—it's uh, it, amazing how we plan for something, it goes wrong, we find ourselves somewhere else, and then the result is better. You know, yeah. have we noticed how sometimes the greatest growth has come from the most devastating problems and mistakes and issues. You know, that's where the growth (laughs) is. Um, And we've all had mistakes. It's our education. Um, Mm -hmm. And so being a broke-ass biker, because, you know, I was, I knew what it was like to be poor, I went on a different way. In fact, I've probably got to give you a little story from my granddad. Um, My granddad was seven foot something, a massive uh, Irish uh, Irish lad, and I was on the building site, and I'm like about 16 years old, and I'm already starting to fight, feel myself aggravated. And I walked up the ladder one day, and I had a pile of bricks on my shoulder because my dad was telling me I had to deliver bricks to the to the bricklayers. And my iconic move in life was to eventually become a bricklayer. You know, now I'm in East London, I'm getting rained on, I'm getting cut up. And I'm in East London, which means every Friday night, we pile down to the pub, we drink too much, and we get into a pub fight. That was my life. Mm -hmm. you know. And at 16, I'm like, "Ah." I went up the ladder one day with this pile of bricks on my shoulder, and I got to the top of the ladder, and I turned around to see the bricklayers. And the one closest to me was my dad. Next to him was my uncle, his brother. Next to him was my two cousins, who was like 19 years old and like 26. And then next to him
4: was my granddad, who I don't know the exact age, but I'm thinking was like in his 80s. I saw my family tree, and I
2: froze. In fact, I can still smell it, feel it. It was a slight drizzle. We had a chill, but not too cold. I can remember everything. Mm. I know the exact building site it was at, and I've driven past it over the years and just gone, whoa. And I froze. And my dad yelled at me, and he was like, put the bricks down. I put the bricks down. And I went downstairs to get some more. Now, come tea break time, there was a caravan that had the wheels removed. And everyone would huddle in it to try and keep warm. And granddad being the eldest one on the site, they let him stick by the fireplace. So as I came into the caravan, I squeezed my way through all of these kind of like, you know, wet brick layers. All stinking in a hot hot, Hmm. caravan with no air conditioning to get to my granddad. And I crouched down in front of my granddad, who was pouring tea out of a thermos flask. And um, he didn't look at me. And I was like, granddad, granddad. You know, and I'm like this hyped up 16-year-old kid. And I'm like, granddad, granddad. And he's like, yep. Yeah. And he's still pouring. And I said to him, hey, granddad, I've got to ask you, did you ever think you'd be doing this when you were this old? Now, that was the kind of question that should have got me a punch in the head. <laughs> But he didn't even look at me. He blew on his teeth so he could cool it down so he could start sipping it. And I remember these words
4: because it's always led me. He said to me, son, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. The entire caravan went quiet. You know, the world suddenly went quiet and still. And I came out of that caravan like a, like a bullet out of a gun. And I ran up to my dad and I said, dad, dad, dad. I've got to quit.
2: And as I was doing that, everyone was piling out the caravan and my granddad walked behind me. And again, when you, when granddad walks around you, you know it because he's a big fella. Now, the funny thing was my dad was like five foot six. So to say that he missed the gene pool on that, <laughs> you know, I'm six foot. So it was literally like dad, me, granddad, you know, in this line. But granddad walked behind me and I could feed his presence, see the shadow. Saw my dad look up at his dad, and I said, i got to quit. And he was like, why? And I went, that guy went up on a ladder. I said, sure, you saw that? I went down with Caliphant. I asked, you don't
4: quit today. you have be beating tomorrow. I don't want to be granddad tomorrow. And he looked at granddad, and he looked at me, and he went, we're light-handed. You quit fighting.
2: My granddad died shortly after that, and I never got to tell him the impact he had. But Mm -hmm. from that moment, I was fear-driven. And a lot of people will go, well, if you do that, that could happen. And they go, whoa. Mm-hmm. I say, if I don't try to get that, I'm going to stay here. Whoa. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be me. Even today, and I live very well, I'm, I'm absolutely fine, but I don't want to be me this time next year.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I remember someone saying to me that the definition of hell is to have met the man you could have been.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I wasn't willing to let that opportunity go. Now, of course, you go for every opportunity. You make mistakes. You lose money. You go broke. You, you get sued. You get all that fun of stuff. But aren't those just the stripes that give you your entrepreneur certificate? So until you've been laughed at, screwed over, mocked, ripped off, gone bankrupt, gone broke, gone broke again, you know that's the line of the entrepreneur. So I went out there and I decided straight off the bat, I need to work with rich people. So, I tried every kind of job that I could get that worked with rich people because I wanted to know how rich people lived, thought, acted, because I knew how broke people thought, Mm -hmm. because that was me. And so, I tried everything. I tried uh, insurance sales, I worked for American Express, car cleaning for rich cars. Um, I tried to become a stockbroker, and that was the weird job. Um, I went for an apprentice position for a firm that was recruiting trainee stockbrokers for a branch they were opening up in Hong Kong. Now, I went into this applying for a job wearing my dad's suit and having a resume that was more abstract and off the rails than any kind of chapter from a Harry Potter movie. In my resume, I actually mentioned how I was connected with the royal family in Bloodline. Okay, I wanted to make the resume because I didn't have a good resume. I didn't have a resume. Left school at 15, started on a building site. Mm -hmm. Very short, postage stamp, resume. So I made up this resume to hopefully expose some kind of like creative thinking skills, you know? And I didn't want to say, hey, I left school with like five A-levels and, you know, a diploma because that would have been lying. But if I could say that I was actually related to the Queen of England through a bloodline that was like, disrupted in 18. That was just that was just absurd. (laughs) And I wanted it to be that if someone read the resume, they would laugh but go, We'll give him a shot. That's what I was trying for. Uh Well they recruited 60 apprentices. They never even read my resume. Mm. And so I got accepted, I got a job, I got flown over to Hong Kong, landed on the Saturday, got drunk with them on the Saturday, got drunk with them on the Sunday, did orientation on the Monday and I got fired on the Tuesday
4: because they realised I had slipped through the net and um, they said to me, "But here's the weird thing, Steve. Because we
2: brought you here, you've got the apartment for three months, and we've got to give you a month seventh package. Now for me, I would like the richest guy on the planet until I realised how expensive Hong Kong was, and that uh-huh. went. Uh-huh. So far. <laughs> And it was one night that I was in a bar and I was, you know, I had very little money. I think I may have had like 500 bucks left in my, in my pocket. Uh, All my money was in my pocket and I'm drinking this whiskey and I'm in this bar and there's people inside and I'm thinking, I want to be them, but I don't know how to step up. And I was very deflated, very depressed. Mm. Sitting there in my black t shirt and jeans, which has been my uniform forever, and um, this woman comes over, and uh, I won't do, I won't do the impression of her accent because it's basically you know racially inappropriate. But this ninety year old Chinese woman kind of runs over to me, and she's like, "You, you, you, you know, get your get your boys out, or we get our boys to get your boys out." I'm sat on my own. No one was talking to me. Even the stockbrokers I'd come over with looked at me like a, <clears throat> like cancer, like a fraud and wanted nothing to do with me. And I'm thinking, well, who's my boys? And the curiosity got me. So I walked up to the curtain of the bar, looked through the bar, and there's three big white guys getting a bit lippy and leery with the people in the bar. And she's instantly gone, well, you're white and big and ugly. They're white, big and ugly. You lot must be connected. So I'm like, that had nothing to do with me. That's your problem, girl. And she looked at me and she said, you get them out or my boys get them out. I said, I couldn't care what you do with those guys. And then she looked at me and she went, you get them out. I buy all your drink. Now she had my attention. Because I'm like, (laughs) like, all right. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't close. In my head, I'm thinking, you don't close for another three hours. I'm going to drink you out of everything you got, you know? So... I went in there, sat, literally walked up to the three guys, sat down, said to them, hey, guys, they're not just looking at me. I said, look, walk out the front door, uh, pay your bill, walk out the front door, all nicely, and uh, come back tomorrow and I'll buy you your first beer. They said, or I'm going to walk out the front door and a bunch of guys are going to come from that curtain, and you ain't going to see Tuesday. So please make the right decision, boys. Anyway, have a good night. And I walked back out front. My whiskey's still there. My chair's still there. And I plop myself down. I go back to my my drink. A couple of seconds later, they came out. And uh, they're like, oh, thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. And I'm like, yeah, okay. you know," Because I had nothing to do with it. I just wanted to get drunk. uh, Because I thought my life was over. My wife, by the way, was in England. And I was having no luck with getting jobs. So I'm really depressed. Um, And she came over to me and she said, "Uh, you have a job here. You you start now, you know, you dormant. And I'm like, really? And uh, and she she offered to pay me, I think it was like a thousand bucks a week. And I'm like, Yeah, okay, but the funny thing is, just to give you a quick antidote, the following day, those guys came back and they went, Hey, we're here, you know, you said you'd buy us a beer. So I turned around to the boss lady and I went, Hey, can we get these three guys a beer? And she went, No, you promised to buy him a beer, you buy him a beer. And so my first first paycheck, I had to buy him a beer. But here's where it happens for all entrepreneurs. Here's the point of that long-winded story. You think you're in the pit. You think this is where your dark days are. Had I not had that job, I would not be sitting where I am now. Because all of a sudden, being the doorman of a nightclub in Wan Chai, Hong Kong, I got to see how people interacted. I got to see how they communicated with each other. And it's true. A bunch of poor people getting together, and that may sound rude, but a bunch of people, however you want to put it, you know, a bunch of those getting together thinking, well, we can only afford something for the night. And a bunch of people that are successful and a bunch of people that are pretending to be successful, they all, they all move differently. You know, the billionaires would be the ones who would be polite and courteous and calm and confident. The wannabes are the ones that are showing off. And I remember a lesson there was this guy pulled up in a car and I used to play a game. Are you driving the car or is the car driving you? You know, and I used to play this game with, you know, are you wearing the watch or is the watch wearing you? All of this, but stick with me. The car pulls up, the guy gets out. The guy that loves his car puts a jacket on, gives the valet boy a couple of extra bucks, says, you know, please look after it and goes in. The guy that's trying to show off Puts his jacket on like it's slow motion and is looking around (laughs) going, is everyone checking me out with this car? Puts the jacket on, makes a big thing about, don't scratch this. It's a $200,000 Ferrari. All of that. And you realize the car's driving him. And it's like the guy that's just bought a a beautiful watch. Have you ever noticed that they've got that sleeves? Like one's one's full (laughs) up, the other (laughs) one just just go off the watch. And I suddenly noticed what <laughs> are these little traces of how people interacted. And then I, I started hanging out with some of the richer people going, So you guys out for a good night? Yeah, we just celebrated. Oh, what did you do tonight? Oh, we landed a good deal. Oh, who landed it? Well, I'm joining. Let's get you a round of drinks. And I try to find a way to get into that conversation. And then one night they came in, and I had become the oracle of where the nightlife was happening around the area. Again, we did have Google. didn't have Yelp or anything like that. So people were like, Steve, where's the best place? And I'd be like, it's up there. See Johnny. Tell him Sim sent you. And I, I became, I had to have a way of connecting with affluent people.
1: So you were networking is what you were doing. Um, I mean, you were connecting. Oh, you were connecting yes, people.
2: Yeah, because I'm actually a terrible networker. Mm-hmm. I don't have time for, you know, listening to what you watched on Netflix. You know, I'm terrible at the water cooler chit chat. No,
1: no, no. I meant real networking, networking. Like if you've read the go giver, the, the idea of the person who makes things happen behind the scenes and plugs the people in that are really important to be together. Yes.
2: Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to lead with a solution. If I could enter a conversation with a solution, I would be in that conversation. So I had started to get a reputation as this guy that knew well the Nightlife was. And these guys came into the party one night and uh, I would got to know them over like a you know, couple of months period. And they went, oh, you going to that yacht party tonight, Steve? And Hong Kong is a very tiny island and there's loads of harbors. And I went, do you know, I don't know. I didn't even know anything about it. And I said, oh, I don't know. You know, which one are you talking about? And they told me. And I said, why aren't you going there? And they went, we can't get in. And so I went, oh, okay, I don't, I don't know, maybe I will. They went in. I, it was just around the corner for me. I went down to the harbor and I took my tie off. So I've just got a black suit on and a white shirt. And as I'm walking to the harbor, it's about a couple of hours off of the party. There's the girl there with her checklist and her loading stuff off onto the yacht and a beautiful yacht. And I walked down there and I said, hey, how you doing? You know, my name's Steve Sims. I've got four people coming to your party tonight. I know you start at nine o'clock, but I wanted to ask you, do you want them here at 8.30 or do you want them at 9.30? What would help the bottleneck and help you to get people into the party? So first question, first thing to learn. What would help never, you? Yeah, but never, ever ask a question where the answer becomes a liability. Mm. I'm not going to ask her, hey, can they come in the party? Yes or no? Because which answer am I going to get? You know, <laughs> I don't want that answer. So if she says, well, 8.30, I win. If she says 9.30, I win. Never ask a question where you face the chance of the answer being a liability to you. So she's like, oh, and knee-jerk reaction, because everyone's got them. She starts flicking through this sheet of names. Now, if you rewind these, you'll notice I never said the names of the clients, But that was her go-to reaction. That was her comfort zone. You get some people that, like, stretch when they're thinking of an answer. Scratch there. Everyone's got
4: a knee jerk reaction. So I repeated the question. Hey, I don't want to be a stress to you. I know you've got a busy night. I'm just trying to think of you.
2: So she turns around and she said, uh, 9, 9.45 would be good. She's
4: demonstrating she's in authority. Hey, that's fine. Still got an answer I wanted. 9.45, that's great. So I said to her, I said, look, let's be blunt.
2: Everyone's going to pile into your party. And I'm, so I'm praising her for, now she works for it, but I'm now calling it her party. I said, look, everyone's going to plow into your party, have a fantastic time, and let's be serious. Forget the people that put the party on. I know how hard you're working here. And I gave her 200 bucks, okay? 200 bucks is a lot of money, you know, that I was making. You know, I'm on about, I was making a 1,000 bucks a week, and I've just given her $200 of it. And I said, look, tomorrow, when this is all over,
4: Get yourself a takeaway and a bottle of wine and just be thankful that you pulled off the, the party of the year. But I just wanted to demonstrate that I appreciate And
3: awesome. then,
4: I risked, then I risked it. Then I turned away to walk off.
2: Bearing in mind, I'd still not given her the four people's names. As I turned away, she went, well, Steve, Steve. I went, yeah. She went, what's the names? And I went, oh, they're probably in there, but it's Barry, I gave her the four names. And she put them down on the front of her pad. And I said, look, is there someone you want? To-? She said, when, you, when they get here, ask them, tell them to ask for Cheryl. She said, I'll make sure they've got a good place to be. Cheryl will have a great time. And I left. I went back to the party, walked into the nightclub, walked up to the four boys, and I went, guys, I've just made a phone call. I didn't even have a phone. you know." But I went, I've just made a phone call, and you're in. I said, I had to pull a few strings, so it's
4: 500 bucks each. Okay? They shot up throwing the money down faster than lightning. And I realized afterwards when I spoke to one of them about how was the party,
2: that the higher profile you get, the richer you get, the more scared you become to actually ask to get in. Because two things happen. And I live in Hollywood. If you're very prolific, if you're very well known, they'll either say no to you because, hey, turning away Brad Pitt from a nightclub You must be a super exclusive nightclub. Or when they bring you in, they'll use you for photographs for the nightclub. Or they'll try and get the manager to hang out with you. Bottom line of it is getting stuff for free becomes the most expensive way to get it. But if you can find someone that acts as the conduit and you pay $10,000 to get in with all of that hoopla removed, becomes the cheapest way to get into that event. So I suddenly realized that rich people, and this is going to sound stupid, rich people had a problem. The richer you were, the harder it was for you to get into somewhere without being abused. So I started throwing parties, and you had to be a millionaire to get into my party. You had to be. I had to be able to look you up and see you were a millionaire to get into the party. And these went for a while, and I started off with like 12 people at the party, and then I ended up with like 30 people, and they would bring guests and friends. They weren't millionaires, but they were still super, you know, elite by then. And we're talking about the 80s now, the early 90s. So being a millionaire back then was still something to be proud of. Today, you're broke being a millionaire, (laughs) but back then it was something. Um, But uh, they would bring them in. And here was another twist of of downslide that became really good was that I, I got threatened to be shut down on one of my parties. And I'm like, no, I'm just starting to build up this network of affluent people. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but it was a field of dreams. If I can get them into my circle, I'll work that out later. And I just wanted to be in the room with those affluent people and to be able to be engaged in the conversation. And this guy came to um, a a meetup that we had, and he said, you know, you can't be doing these parties. And I said, why? He said, you don't have a liquor license. And I said, well, okay, I'll buy a liquor license. A liquor license can't be expensive. And bear in mind, this was Hong Kong back in the 90s. You know, give someone a couple hundred bucks and you're pretty much off everything. And I went, it can't be hard. And he went, no, no, no. He said, you can't be doing it. You know, you have to apply. And so in about nine months, maybe 12 months,
4: you'll get the liquor license. And I said, well, I I can't wait nine months. And he went, well, give it away then. I went, do what? He said, if you give the drinks away and you're not selling them, He said, so give them away. It'd be
2: eating into your profit. But he thought that was a way by eating into my profit that I would go, hey, I want to buy a liquor license. Entrepreneurs, we see things differently.
1: You said just raise the prices and give away the free alcohol.
2: (laughs) So my ticket prices went from 500 bucks to 1,500 bucks a party, which meant the people that never had a lot of money could no longer afford to go. But everyone that could all the food and drink was included in the party, no liquor license required. So Mm -hmm. the entrepreneurs look at the solution
4: rather than the problem.
1: Yes. Well, it was interesting how you said as well that being a conduit to provide access to somebody. I mean, in this world today, somebody is trying to be successful in various, they're trying to do multiple things in their business. And there's just so much that You can have so much information. You can have so many different processes, ways of doing things. And sometimes just having a streamlined straight shot to the the person who is the solution or to the answer is what somebody needs. And so being willing to pay for getting things done for you as opposed to doing it yourself is really valuable. (laughs) So it's just really interesting how you're saying that being that conduit for access. I think a lot of people need a conduit for access. Maybe it's not two high-end parties, Maybe it is a conduit for access to their best clients, or maybe it's a conduit for access to getting a landing page up on their website, or maybe it is a conduit for access to getting a whole life insurance policy, whatever it might be. Any entrepreneur, any business owner thinking or listening to this conversation, you might be saying, well, these are interesting stories, but it's really relevant to any industry that you're in because everybody needs a conduit for access. Which Simplifies their life.
2: Absolutely. I think the first thing that made me, the first thing that helped make me wealthy was realizing how inadequate I was at so much. And I, as my business grew, and as I went from doing clubs to people saying, hey, can you sort me out with this and sort me out with that, I never tried to invent a concierge firm. I just wanted to have a connection. And mm-hmm. so the concierge firm just happened to be the, another reason that they would stay in touch with me. But then I realized that I can't do web pages, I can't do marketing, I can't do follow-ups. One of the big things that I can't do is handle money. Okay? Because money money steers out of emotion. If you've got a lot of money in the bank account, you get lazy and relaxed and cocky. If you've got no money in the bank account, you start hustling and taking on deals that you really shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I realized, and this is. God, I'm 54 years old. I don't think I've been on my bank account, and this may sound really bad, since probably my late 30s, okay? My wife always makes sure that all of my cards are you know, stacked up. I can go and buy a motorbike. I can fly around the planet. I've never got to worry about that. But she handles all of that, all the invoicing. I'll go and go, hey, we're going to do this, and then she'll lay out the invoicing. So the smart thing for every entrepreneur to know is what you're not good at. Mm -hmm. and then get that delegated at. It's a tough thing because as entrepreneurs, we want to control everything. But the first way to become really good, really strong, is to realize what you're bad at and to get people that are exceptional at what you're not at. And that that was the the lesson in it for me.
0: This is is, uh, the perfect uh, segue why I was excited to talk to you today because of your apparent connection to Dan Sullivan. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, Joe, and Joe Polish and Peter Diamandis. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is classic Dan Sullivan uh, right here. So are, are you a casual acquaintance? Have you gone through Dan's programs? You know, because I've, I've, done, I've done those programs. We, we actually use those programs to talk on the podcast. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about your relationship with Dan Sullivan. So I've
2: known Dan for years, uh, Dan and Babs. And um, let's just say that I've given them some interesting cocktail stories. Um, but uh, no, I've never actually been through through the course because I've been able to sit there and have a meal or a cocktail with them and kind of like get it firsthand direct. I find myself, you see, you say about that, I'm still a 15-year-old bricklayer with 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 no brain cells, okay? And when I'm sitting at a table with Joe Polish, Peter Diamandis, and Dan and Bab Sullivan, whenever I'm up in in Scottsdale. I literally go back to my room like a, little, like a little girl at a Justin Bieber concert. I can't believe <laughs> the rooms that I'm in and the people. I was driving down the road one day with my, uh, my I call him my dad, um, but he's my wife's dad, so my father-in-law. And he used to repair cars, you know, you know when they were dented. Uh, and he was a, a body specialist for a car company, um, not some, some little backroom garage uh, in England. And we're driving down the road one day and the phone rings and it's Peter Diamandis. And we start having a conversation about, you know, you know, on the phone. And then I introduced him to my father-in-law. And after the phone call, my father-in-law is the, isn't that the guy that sent the rocket up and then Richard Branson bought it? And I went, <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's phoning you. And I'm like, yeah, he is. And again, I get all tingles. So, I think the first thing is I never take it for granted, but I absorb the crack out, a crap out of it. Anything that Peter wants to tell me, I'm holding on to that. And Dan, Dan will sit there and Babs, they're, they're a powerhouse, and they'll go, why are you doing that, Steve? And you'll go, oh, I, I, I don't,
4: why, what
2: should I look? And they will help me. And I'll get that from meal. So I'm very fortunate from the people that I actually get to communicate with.
1: Oh, that's a huge blessing. But thanks for bringing that up, Bruce.
0: Oh yeah. I was, I, I obviously, I looked at a lot of your stuff before the, uh, before the podcast and uh, I was impressed by that. And, and the second thing I'm impressed is that you think I'm younger than you uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> I, because I'm not. Uh, but uh, I also saw your, uh, your photo with Steven Tyler. So yeah. can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Cause that um, I, I was a, Great big Errol Smith fan, you know. As you and I were growing up in the same era,
4: oh,
2: who isn't, you know? And if they're not, then I don't want them in my network. Um, <laughs> but I remember uh, I worked for Elton John. Oh, there you go, name drop. I worked for Elton John for about eight years, uh doing his Hollywood Oscar party, and we used to. They had a white carpet and not a red carpet, and so I would. It was a little bit annoying, but. Because I was kind of a a little bit known in certain circles. There were certain circles that I'm very well known in. And to the rest of the planet, no one knows who the hell I am. And I'm fine with that. But at this party, they would have me walk down the white carpet to get all the photographs. And of course, a lot of the photographers would be clicking away and then going, who the hell's this? Uh, But what happens is when you go onto a red carpet, someone goes out uh, ahead of you with a little... Um, scribble on like a little extra sketchboard going, Steve Sims, founder of stevedsims.com and an entrepreneur's advantage. And then they take a picture of that and then take pictures of you. And then, the so as I'm on the white carpet, just to go on, in front of me is Steven Tyler. Now I bumped into Steven Tyler, I think three or four times at different Hollywood events. Okay. And I like uh, King Baby Rock jewelry. He wears King Baby Rock jewelry. <clears throat> we both like Aerosmith. So, you know, we'd, we'd shared a couple of words a couple of times, but not like a big dialogue. But I'm stood there waiting to get onto the white carpet and they wanted a rock star. Uh, someone was in front of me, some actor. And what they do is they jiggle the people around backstage. So it's not 10 rock stars going out on the white carpet and then 10 actors. And so this actor had gone out and they asked Stephen to go in front of me he would be interesting, then I would be boring, and then they could put so, – so, so they asked Stephen to go in front of me. So he's like, hey, Stephen. I'm like, hey, how you doing? And I wanted to get into a conversation because it's Stephen Tyler, you know, and this was my time. And I went, that's pretty cool, isn't it, you know, walking up the white carpet. And he turned around to me and he said, do you know it's funny? He said, the white carpet's about 50 feet long. And in tomorrow, we're going to have our pictures all over the news, walking down the white carpet of Elton's party. But there's not a single picture of us crawling down the miles and miles
4: and miles to finally get to here. Mm-hmm. I thought to so myself, that, that was profound. You know? no, one, no one photographs the
2: shit you go through. <laughs> no one remembers the time on a Wednesday night you can't sleep because it's payroll on a Friday and you've got to work out how to spank your mum's credit card to be able to pay the staff, or how do you keep your life, no one's got pictures of that. Or no one's going to put them on Instagram, even if you have. But they'll certainly be there to put a picture of you. And so he went down the white carpet, I went down it, and everyone's taking photographs of me. And funny enough, he made the press and I didn't. Um, And then once we got inside, I spoke to him and I said, you know, that, that really meant something. You know, people don't. And he was talking about how... You know, they want to slide and run MC, And we were just having a conversation. And again, I'm thinking, I'm having a conversation with Stephen Tyler. And Stephen Tyler, funny enough, doesn't like to take photographs. And as I'm stood there talking to him, I'm actually thinking to myself, I would love a photograph with Stephen Tyler. Oh my God, I would. But if I asked, hey, can I get a selfie? I would have lost the respect. As I'm talking to him, and as I'm in the back of my head going, I really want a photograph. One of the photographers for the event for Elton's party turned around and said, guys, can we take a photograph? And I was like, Steve, I'm all right with it if you are. You know." And he's like, yeah, all right, let's do it. And we quickly took a photograph. And then I tracked that photographer down. I was like, I need that picture. You've got to give me that picture. So I tracked it down. So that's how I got my picture with Stephen Tyler.
1: That's hilarious. I really, <laughs> I really just love your... Just authenticity and also just the grit in going after what you wanted and how that just opened up so many doors for you. It's just really fascinating how you've been able to be in conversation and in the room with so many fascinating people. And what's really cool is that there's not a lot of people who can say that they've put on the kind of parties and events that you've done. I mean, it's it's just really, really fascinating. What would you say to somebody who is an entrepreneur right now, they're building a business and they say... I really have a service that can benefit a specific kind of person. How do I make sure that I get in front of the right people and attract those higher net worth, higher profile clients? And I know that that's a a big question for uh, five minutes.
2: Yeah. So I am going to condense the hell out of this. Um, As you know, I took over the academia, the Galleria. I set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. I did a dinner party. For private clients, I closed the museum down from 3 o'clock in the afternoon till 2 o'clock in the morning, and I had Andrea Bocelli come in as the music for the dinner party, okay? Fantastic, multi-million dollar deal, incredible. But there's a story behind it that not a lot of people know that you need to because it's going to answer your question perfectly. Once I had got permission by going through some very powerful connections, and I leveraged connections, I would never phone... Like for argument's sake, I would never phone you up, Rachel. Or Bruce, you're even probably a better example. If I needed to get hold of you, Bruce, and I knew that you know Joe Polish, I'd have Joe Polish make the introduction because you wouldn't turn me down because I would have come in on the credibility of Joe. All right. I always do that. So to get into the museum, I contacted some rather powerful people in Italy. Okay. And once they had said yes to my my you know request, my desire, my dream, my creative event. They put me in touch with the, uh, the head curator of the museum who was an arsehole. This guy, every time I asked him to do something, he would literally turn around and go, uh, uh, uh I will see what I can do. <laughs> now, when you're spending the kind of money I was spending with the kind of people that I had behind it, not only the clients were some of the most powerful clients in the planet, but the people that actually got me to take over a museum. We're talking about big powerhouse people, and I've got this guy going,
3: hey,
2: uh, it should be okay. You don't want it should be okay. you know. (laughs) So on the night of the party, uh, the dinner party, and I'm stood in there, Andre is in the corner just warbling up. I'm talking to Veronica Bocelli, his wife. They've just set the piano up. They've set the table up. There's Michelangelo's David, and the entire museum only has about 13 people in it, and I'm in control of everything. I'm feeling glorious. My chest was like a silverback gorilla. I was like the king shit. Um, I had done a selfie video with me and Andrea that I sent to my wife uh, back here in LA, where Andrea was saying hello to my wife. I do that a lot with people, it winds her up. Um, And in the corner was the curator. And I didn't like that this guy had given me friction all the way through. So this is my immatureness. Okay, if that's, if that's a word. I asked him to come over to me. So he came over and he stood next to me. And I won't say his name for the reason I'll come to in a second. And I said to him, hey, look at that table. Is that not the most beautiful table for a dining experience? In, in, not only in Italy, in the world. Is that not a beautiful table? Had all gold lace on it and everything. Gold chairs, big candlesticks. He's like, "Yeah, no, it is, a, it is a beautiful. I apologize about the accent. I said, and look at the view. This table is 12 feet, because we measured it, away from the feet of Michelangelo's David, the most iconic statue in the planet. Is there a better view from a dining table? He's like,
4: no, it's, it's stunning. I said, and
2: look at this. Andrea Bocelli is going to be your dinnertime entertainment. Is there any better way to eat Italian food at the feet of David with the maestro himself. Can it get any better than that? He's like, no, it is, uh, it is beautiful. As I say, I'm immature. I wanted to slap the guy just to put him into his place to let him know who the King,
4: king B is here. So then I turned around to him and I said, so tell me. How come I pulled it off? Now, I was expecting
2: him to come up with, well, no one's as connected as you. No one knows how to negotiate as, as well as you. No one's as good looking as you. Any of those answers, I would have been happy. They would
4: have pacified my ego and I would have gone to bed happily. But he looked at me with his arms crossed and he said, no one's ever asked. And literally I folded over. You know, I, I got the
2: sucker punch. And I was mm-hmm.
4: like, oh crap. And as I came back
2: up, he had this massive, great smile on his face because he knew he'd got me. Now, I didn't mention his name because his name was Albano and he's become a lifelong friend of mine because we went out afterwards, air track, and we've stayed in contact. But on the flight back from LA, I suddenly asked myself the question that you, Rachel, asked. How come I managed to do it? It's not because of stunning good looks. It's not because of intelligence. It's not because of any of those things. It's because I dared to ask. And I literally got back and I contacted celebrities, artists, movie studios, the Pentagon, Harvard, all of these people. And I went on an investigation over two months going, hey, we haven't spoken for a couple of years. Do you remember when we did this? Hey, I just wanted to How come I managed to pull that off? And, you know, every single answer came back to me, not with money. They came back and they said, well, you asked Steve. You know, no one ever asked. You asked us could this be
4: done? And I realized we don't ask for what we want. We ask for what we think we can get. We ask for what we think we can settle for. The amazing people out there, they go for stupid. And I'll finish it off with Elon
2: Musk. Elon Musk once said to me when I was walking through SpaceX with him, he said, and we were talking about how NASA was publicly humiliating him as a privateer getting into the space industry. That was just before they actually partnered with him, okay?
4: (laughs) And he turned around and he said to me, they will always laugh at you before they applaud. So go for stupid.
1: That was a wonderful note to leave this on. That was just, I mean, so so fascinating, dare to ask. So simple and almost stupid. But so profound. I think that is uh, just that was worth the whole show today. I mean, this was really cool. Bruce, is there anything you want to share? We're just about to the top Uh, of the hour. We need to wrap this up.
0: Yeah, I know. Um, So, Steve, let's let's do let's talk a little bit. Let's give you a little value for the podcast. Talk a little bit about your event coming up in Scottsdale in February.
2: So, I do a reverse mastermind. Um, We tell people the city. It's in Scottsdale on the 11th and 12th. uh, Sorry, the 10th and 11th of February. It's in Scottsdale, and it's $2,000, and that's all the information we give. Now, it may sound very – people go, well, who's turning up? Who's going to be there? We work in reverse. When you register, we contact you, and we go, hey, Bruce, what's your problem? And we try to find out what your problem is, and then I go in my Rolodex, and I bring people in to solve your problem. Because I've been – the so. well, we all have. We go to events, and they go, come to this event. This person will be here. This person will be here. And maybe two or three of them appeal to you and you sit in the audience and you clap like a demented sea lion and then you walk out to the coffee machine and someone says, hey, so what are you going to do from that presentation? And they go, uh, I don't know, but I know I'm motivated and I never liked that. So what I try to do now is I bring people in that can actually teach you. We don't have speakers. We have teachers. They come in and we identify a problem and then we spend 45 minutes to an hour solving that problem so you now have an impact sheet of what you need to go out and do. It's called the Speakeasy. You can find it at stevedsims.com or even just uh, google simsspeakeasy.com and it'll pop up there. But I think everyone should work in that reverse to solve the problem rather than just trying to get a walk-on motivational uh, hit list.
0: Sounds great.
1: That is awesome. So we will make sure that we have those links in the show notes as well. So stevedsims.com and right. simspeakeasy.com, right?
2: That's the one. Yeah. I also have a free Facebook group called An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims, and that's completely free. No hook in it. No flow. I have no funnels. I have zero funnel. So you're not going to get an email every three seconds going, hey, buy me t t-shirt, buy me hair products. We don't have those.
1: Love it. So um, tell us as well. So you wrote a book called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. Can you tell us about that real quick? I
2: did. Um, I got asked to, name, to write a book naming all the famous, powerful, successful people I dealt with. And I knew I wanted to live. So I couldn't do that. So in chatting with them, they said, well, why don't we write a book that how a 15-year-old bricklayer now has like the Pope and Elon Musk on speed dial? So that's what I did. I wanted to show you that if a bricklayer from London could be doing this, you're already out of excuses. And in fact, the first testimonial, just and this'll this will help you, Bruce. The first testimonial on here is a guy called Sir Elton John. Upcoming artist, but I think he's gonna be good. And then the fourth <laughs> one on here is Peter Diamandis. So um I got some I got some pretty cool friends.
1: <laughs> you absolutely absolutely do. And thank you so much just for sharing that with us. Thank you for sharing your personality with us as well and just being uniquely you which is a tremendous value as well. We all need to do that just step into being exactly who we are. And I think that's one of the unique advantages that you have. You're just being genuine and authentic. And I love how in reading about you as well you you lean into that history that you had being a bricklayer from London and not trying to hide that fact anymore and not being in a position of of saying, well, hey, I'm all that and you should listen to me because of this, but instead you're you're very authentic with where you came from. And I think being uniquely ourselves and being honest about where we've come from and here and telling our story in a true and powerful way is really the way to, to be able to build those, those authentic relationships. So thank you so much for being with us on the show. I know that our audience got a tremendous amount of value. Um, you can also get your book and I'm sure that they can get that on Amazon. Is that right? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share, Steve, in closing? Um, and how can people get in touch with you directly?
2: So, stevedsims.com uh, or join my inner circle at Sims to Still Look, go, you'll find me. You know, this isn't a pitch fest. But my dad um, was walking down uh, East London with me one day and he was a chain smoker. And as we're walking along, I'm like about 14 years old. I hadn't left school or anything. And for no reason whatsoever, He puts his hand on my shoulder as we're still on stride. And he says to me, son, no one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. And he took his hand off my shoulder, carried on smoking and walked off. And I remember that like that age, I stopped and I was like, what the hell was that? (laughs) You know. And I thought he'd just been consumed by a fortune cookie or something. It made no sense to me. But as entrepreneurs, we fall in the water often. And so it's our decision as to whether or not we stay there and drown. So that little remark from my dad, <coughs> my, my Irish fella there, um, stayed with me forever and often helped me when I've fallen in the water.
1: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being in a position to recognize that as an entrepreneur, you will fall down. You can continue getting back up. And there is hope. There's even financial hope as well. And so if you want to talk with us about being in a position of building time and money freedom, keeping more of the money that you make, being able to save and protect that and turn it into more cash-flowing assets, we'd love to talk to you. You can find us at themoneyadvantage.com as well. Now, Steve, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll make sure all those links are on the show notes. And in closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd.